with secularism, the notion that um, of, a, of a culture without religion. Materialism, right? All that exists is matter, and like what we can see and touch. With rationalism, really reason is the ultimate authority. And all of these things growing in our nation, I have a question for you. It's a hypothetical question. It's not a kind of a fear-mongering question, but just a hypothetical question kind of along these lines. If Christianity were to become illegal in Canada tomorrow, what would that do to your faith? Just hypothesize with me here for a moment. If, If in Canada you wake up tomorrow and the big news of the day is it's no longer legal to be a Christian, what would that do to your faith? I mean, if you're like me, a million questions on a morning like that would just start to flood into your mind. Really, it'd probably start with God, right? Where is God? What is going on? Where's God? And that this is happening. Like, does he care? Questions of like, has he forgotten us? Are we now a forgotten people? You're starting to ask, is he in control? I mean, that such a thing would happen? Why would he, why would he want that to happen in a place that, that, that Christianity would not flourish? Like, like, is he even in control? Has he been defeated? And then there's the deeply personal questions in the midst of a circumstance like that. Will I remain faithful to Jesus now? Like, will I? Will I still gather with other Christians? Is it that important to risk life or prison? Am I willing to face hostility, even persecution? See, this is a reality that Christians in much of the world face today. In roughly 60 nations, it is illegal. There is persecution for being a Christian. These are the circumstances also in which many of the biblical authors and characters faced, like Daniel, like we just read about. It's very real historically and presently. And as we will see in the introduction to our Daniel series this morning, we're going to, by the way, do the the first six chapters of Daniel. Uh, It's not me copping out. I just want to say that from the get-go. The the latter six chapters of Daniel are like very apocalyptic and like their visions and dreams. And it's fascinating and I'd love to, but uh, we're going to do the first six chapters, which are much more uh, six kind of narrative stories, chapter at a time. We're going to look at those and look look at what faithfulness and exile might look like. They really are two very distinct halves in Daniel, and we're going to look at the first half over the next six weeks. And as we will see in the the introduction to our Daniel series this morning, Daniel was a young man who was under enormous pressure to compromise. He was a Jew who who was taken into exile in the great powerful nation of Babylon at that time, the, the, the world superpower. This is roughly uh, 600 BC. And at that time, the world was dominated by the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon invaded Judah and overthrew Jerusalem. And 
Daniel and others uh, were deported into exile, into Babylon. In fact, Babylon on three different occasions, this kind of wave of, of going back into Judah and bringing back more people into exile in three waves. This is the first wave. Daniel is among these first ones chosen to go into exile, into Babylon. And he likely would have, along with his friends, dragged off into exile. They likely would have traveled by foot 1,448 kilometers So picture exile with me. It's like walking from Chilliwack to Saskatoon. Are you starting to get a feel, right, for just how horrific? No, it's just a joke about Saskatoon. I love Saskatchewan. It's actually also the distance between Chilliwack and Sacramento, walking, knowing you are cast into exile, equally a horrible place, right? Let's just start naming places to, to mock here, right? People always have stuff for Chilliwack. Let's start dishing, uh, dishing it out on others, right? But this is the scenario, and, and, and the political climate at the time is there's, a, there's a, a king named Jehoiakim, king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, because Israel has been broken into two kingdoms by this point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Judah, which contains Jerusalem in it, is the southern kingdom. And Jehoiakim was one of a, a line of kings who were horrible kings. There was kind of, after David, it was really spotty. There was a good king here and there, but for the most part, bad kings. And uh, Jehoiakim was one of them. In fact, his father, Josiah, was one of the few good kings, and Jehoiakim was nothing like him. And under his leadership, the nation was in moral decline. Now, at this same time and, and, and preceding this time, there were prophets in Israel who were declaring Turn back to God. Remain faithful. Don't sin. Don't give yourself into idolatry. Don't give yourself into all of these things that are apart from God's law. Don't do it because what will happen is foreign nations will come into this land and take us into exile. Turn back to God. That was the declaration of the prophets leading up to this point. And yet Jehoiakim was a bad king and the nation followed suit and God stayed true to his word. He called this people into judgment. And yet, while the nation is experiencing God's judgment upon them for their sin, God at the same time is working something as well. He's scattering his presence among the nations. And so what what our aim is in the midst of seeing a people going into exile and being in a very difficult political climate, I want us to see the biblical view here in the midst of this series And it's this, our sin has consequences. This is the biblical view of what's happening in the story. Our sin has its consequences. That's going to happen, but God also is going to work through them to accomplish his purposes. Both are happening in this story and many biblical stories like it. And since Daniel originally addressed his message to Israelites suffering exile in Babylon, his chief goal was to comfort and encourage God's people with the news that despite appearances to the contrary, God was still in control. And Daniel has been an encouragement to believers ever since. In fact, in the midst of persecution and in persecuted places in the world, you know what the two favorite books of the Bible are among those people groups, among those persecuted? The book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. 
two books that we often stay clear of. But in the midst of hardship, in the midst of exile, in the midst of persecution, there is such promise in what is to come and in the present faithfulness of God that it is such a relief and comfort to the hurting followers of Jesus the world over and historically. And I'm confident that it will do the same for us while challenging us not to compromise our faith in the midst of enormous cultural pressure. We're doing a preaching lab right now. And so every Monday night, tomorrow night, there'll be about a dozen aspiring preachers and actually quite capable preachers sitting in this room. And we take turns listening to each other preach. Actually, I don't preach in the class. I just get to critique. It's super fun. Uh, And uh, I'm loving it. We're having uh, uh, everyone in the lab preach two sermons and and they get feedback from the rest of the group. And, And one of the things we've really been harping on is find the theme, find the main point of the text and make that the main point of your sermon. And yet here I am this morning saying, I can't do it. I have to do two. So if you will let me do two, there are, there are two extremely strong themes. Forgive me, preaching lab students. I see you in the room. Let me diverge here from the advice. There are two strong themes that I think we have to speak to this morning. And one is the providence of God, crystal clear in this passage. I'm going to explain what that means. And all the while in the midst of this passage, there is another clear theme. And that is the faithfulness of Daniel. The providence of God and the faithfulness of Daniel. And that's going to lead us to a couple points of application, which are God's in control even when it doesn't feel that way. And we're called to be faithful even when it costs us. So let me read uh, just the first two verses just to help us dive in again. It says in verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What we just read in verse one of Daniel one is the historical context. This is what happened in history. To the observer at the time, what took place was simply this. Babylon came in and invaded Judah. Historic fact. But then verse two says... Um, it's actually describing the theological explanation. So something deeper is happening. That's what's the, the historic account and what can be seen by the observer. But here's the theological explanation for what's going on in Daniel chapter one. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So let's zero in on what I've said already about the providence of God. Look at verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Let's jump to verse nine if you have a Bible and you have it open. Verse nine says, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Jump to verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Do you see it? God is at work. God is doing things. And so I want to explain what I mean by the word providence. Providence is a theological word. We're not afraid of using theological words here. We just don't want to use them and pretend we all know what they are because that's really useless. But so we want to use the words, learn the words, just like we would learn venti, caramel, macchiato. Like we learn the language of the people. Let's learn the language of theology because I think it's even maybe even a little bit more important than our Starbucks, right? So there you go. 
That was almost, that was an awful thing to say. That was sarcasm, okay? Okay, there we go. Of course it is. Providence is a theological word that has a meaning, like the Trinity, that explains a whole lot of the Bible or a, 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 a an area of doctrine, right? And so when we talk about providence, we're talking about something we see over and over again in the Bible, and it's a word that can explain what we mean by it. And so Wayne Grudem defines providence this way, very full, robust view. It says, the doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them, two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do, and three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Let's break that down. I want to show it to you in scripture, give you some examples. So first what he's saying is God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing. They continue to exist and maintain the properties with which he created them. So he didn't create things and then step away. And it's just kind of on autopilot. God didn't ever step away. Colossians 1.17 talks about Jesus and says, in him all things hold together presently. Jesus is holding all things in the world, in the universe together. Hebrews 1.3 asserts the same thing. He, being Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is presently, actively, continually upholding the world. Secondly, God is continually involved in all created things in such a way that he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is not saying we are robotic. This is not fatalistic. This is saying that in the midst of our living, God is actively um, participating, not in a robotic way or as a defined deterministic sense that we, right? But in this sense that he is actively doing work in the midst of it all, creating things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. There's this one, um, one wise friend that Job has, and that's about it. Bunch of friends, one wise friend, and his name's Elihu. And a number of chapters towards the end of Job, Elihu finally is like, I need to say some stuff. And he begins to talk about and remind all of these friends who God is. We need that reminder from time to time. In Job 37, this is what Elihu is saying of God. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour. So we in the Fraser Valley know this well. God is... He's doing this a lot. He's saying to the weather, downpour on Chilliwack now. And, and then God does, and then, the, and then it rains. Verse 10 says, by the breath of God, ice is given. Verse 11 says, he loads the thick cloud with moisture. Look, we can observe that yes, weather does, climate does these certain things, but what the scriptures are telling us is that, yeah, but God's behind it. God's working in those Things And then thirdly, God is continually involved and directs them to fulfill his purposes. Ephesians 1.11 makes this clear when he says, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now this has some ramifications for us 
And I want to say them to you by way of encouragement. Let's put ourselves in Daniel's shoes here for a moment and picture what he's going through. I mean, in his mind, right? Like he's heard the prophet's warnings before, but, but all he's observing is that the Babylonians have come in and him and his teenage friends are getting dragged out into exile. And he's looking around and like, that's what he sees. And yet that's not all that's going on. And the, the, the story here about the providence of God ought to encourage him, ought to encourage us greatly. God's in control even when it doesn't feel that way. I want to unpack that in three different ways by way of three encouragements. The first is God is near in your circumstances. Not far, not distant, not removed, not helpless. God is near in your circumstances. Let that be a comfort to you. I know it raises questions, but let it be a comfort to you. See, what seemed like a God defeated in battle were circumstances ordained by God. And what seemed like teenage boys abandoned by God in exile was their loving heavenly father's perfect provision. And the same is true for you. What seems like this, what seems like that, what seems like this, God is close, God is near, God is active, God has not forgotten you. We will find ourselves confused by our our circumstances, but Daniel 1's reminding us to remember him and to take heart that God has not abandoned him, nor has he abandoned any of his children. Jesus said in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And that was a couple centuries ago, so we have to kind of mark up the value of that. Two sparrows for a penny worth at least like 20 cents now, right? So are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet, it's so insignificant. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Why? Because he's actively involved in even the sparrow's lifespan. And when they drop, that's That's God. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. For some of us, that's amazing that he can number them all. For some of us, it's like, yeah, well, that's easy, right? 12. Comb de cross. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then he goes on to, to, to summarize it. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than sparrows. You matter more than sparrows, and, and God determines all with the sparrows. God knows the the number of hairs on your head, and he loves you. He knows you. He's with you. He knows that some of your hairs fell out today in the bath, and you stuck them to the wall of the shower. Oh, it's like, oh. Anyways, Emily's not even here, so what was the point of even saying that? So, God is near in your circumstances. He knows you. He loves you. God's in control even when it doesn't feel that way. And we need to be reminded, secondly, that there's no one like God. Nobody's like God. And that should come as a comfort to us in pressing circumstances. Daniel 2.21, we'll see next week. It says, he changes times. This is about God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13.1 asserts the same thing. There is No authority except from God. Did you hear the line? There's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There's no chance. 
the lot is cast, we see in Proverbs, according to God's will. The rolling of the dice, right? God is in control of setting up kings and governments and, right? In that person in Vegas right now that's throwing two dice, he knows how it'll land. Not only does he know it, he allots it. With God, there is no equal. There is no question of who rules and reigns. There's no one like God. And then thirdly, God's in control even when it doesn't feel that way. We ought to be reminded that there is a purpose in everything God does. Sometimes we just need to hear that again. God has purposes. I'm always reminded when I talk about things like this of, of Tim Keller, when he, he said it this way. If there is a God big enough, powerful enough for you to get angry at that he hasn't stepped in in the circumstance in your life, is he not also big enough and powerful enough that he may have a reason for it that you don't know, nor do I? Like we can't have it both ways, can we? We can't say, God, you could stop this, but you're not, and therefore you are wrong. If we can say of God that he has such power, can we not also say, but then he must have a reason that I don't know? Because there's no one like God, and he's actually near in my circumstances And he actually has a purpose in everything. See, we have to follow it through. See, Judah is experiencing judgment here, but but not an ultimate judgment. We need to see that. Judah, in the midst of Daniel 1, is experiencing, I would call it a merciful judgment because they're actually given the opportunity to repent. The opportunity to repent existed when, when the prophets said, stop what you're doing, stop how you're living, stop your idolatry, turn back to God, and they wouldn't listen. And God, in his mercy, is helping them wake up by fulfilling the prophecy and saying, I'm going to bring you into exile. And in the midst of that, there is mercy, an opportunity to turn to God in the midst of dire circumstances. A call to repentance is a gracious judgment, and God is working through it to bring hope to the nations. And the same is true for us. Romans 8.28, I mean, all verses are worthy of memorization, but Romans 8.28 is a good place to start if you don't know it. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And I know it doesn't feel that way a lot of the time. And that's why we're sitting in the book of Daniel for the next number of weeks, because we just need to hear the overwhelming truth, the overwhelming truth words of God in this text to say, but, but he's working. God did this and God did this and God worked this. We have experienced so much religious freedom in this country that's not owed to us, by the way, but certainly has been a wonderful gift. And we can hope that it stays, but we as Christians are called to stand firm in our sovereign God, whether the circumstances are comfortable or whether they're extremely uncomfortable. The call to faithfulness remains the same. We are not owed religious freedom in this country. It's a great gift that we have. But if it's fleeting, the call to us as followers of Jesus remains the same. And we ought to learn from Daniel in that. Let's look at the faithfulness of Daniel. Look at verse 3 again. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, not not a great job, but at least he was the chief of the eunuchs, right? The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom. Sounds a lot like Pastor Tyson. 
endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. All of you who went to Sunday school as a kid are just reminiscing now. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar, pretty brilliant guy, actually. See what he's doing? Babylon has overthrown Judah. And their first plan of action is, let's take the best and brightest young students here. And let's make them the first exiles to Babylon. And then what do they do when they get them to Babylon? You're going to learn our language. You're going to learn our religion. You're going to learn our literature. You're going to learn our ways. You're going to learn our culture. You are going to be cultured in the ways of the Babylonians. You'll eat from the king's table. Three things he's intentionally doing. Essentially, indoctrination is the goal. Through education, through their names, their very identities and through the food that is given to them. So, Nebuchadnezzar knew the way we think about God, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about others, and the way we think about the world, this is actually what I'm describing right now. The answers to those questions is what forms what's called our worldview. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others, what we believe about the world. What we believe about those things determines how we live. So Nebuchadnezzar knew that if he could get these teenagers to think like Babylonians, then they'd live like Babylonians. And that was the point. That the greatest, brightest, young rising stars of the nation they had defeated, when they become entirely Babylonian, how will they ever become a people again? Now, this isn't a tactic that's uh, unique to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it's a tactic that was used in Canada, probably the greatest blemish on our nation's record by um, the government with the involvement of churches to the church's shame, doing residential schools across this nation, grabbing young um, indigenous aboriginal children, putting them in police cars, taking them from their homes, them not seeing their parents for years, bringing them to schools where they would live, where they were no longer to speak their, their native tongue, where they were They could only speak English and they were taught the Western European ways. The whole point was indoctrination, assimilation. The entire point. In fact, it's been stated on the record in the Indian Act that the whole point was the attempt to take the Indian out of the child. To remove language and culture for the purpose of assimilation. And it has had horrific generational effects. Unfortunately, Canada was actually quite successful at it. And one of the last residential schools to close was actually in Mission, BC. To our shame, something for our nation to repent of, which we have done uh, officially with the government only in recent years. Nebuchadnezzar took the exact same tactic 
thousands of years earlier. Started with educating them in Babylonian views. And he even changed their names. Why? Because he wanted to change their very identity. Daniel, which means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect his life. Bel, shorthand for Marduk, really the, the kind of primary God of Babylon. Hananiah, which means God is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, Babylonian God. Mishael, which means who is like God, which hearkens the answer, nobody's like God, nobody's like Yahweh, Israel's God. His name was changed to Meshach, which means who is like Aku, who is like God, who's like, who's like Yahweh, who's like Aku. Azariah, which means God helps, Yahweh helps, Aben, was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. The whole point of changing the name was to change the very identity of the team. And then, finally, they were offered the king's food. And it's interesting because this is where Daniel seems to draw a line. One would imagine he had no choice but to sit under the education, as one in exile, to sit under the education of the Babylonians had no choice but to be renamed. That's how they knew him. They put that name on him. But the food from the king's table, he asked, and he was given favor by uh, the chief eunuch, he asked, can we not eat of this food? Now, the the reasons for this, um, really, there's a couple of major assertions, and I think they're both in play here. One is that the food was ceremonially unclean. So as a good young Jew, Daniel would not defile himself with food that was he was not to eat, like shellfish or pork. He also wouldn't eat, defile himself by eating food cooked in an improper way, like where the blood wasn't drained properly, according to Levitical law and all those sorts of things or to eat food sacrificed to idols. One or all of those things could have been in play at that time, and so he did not want to defile himself by eating the king's food. The other assertion is that the extravagant food of the king represented all the temptations that lay before Daniel. The temptation to embrace the luxuries and subtle flood of indoctrination coming his way. And Daniel and the others like I said, would have been teenagers between likely 14 and 17 years old. And I find it hard to imagine, it's astounding to me what Daniel did in this circumstance by saying, actually, instead of the king's table, the king's buffet, I'd, I'd prefer to eat vegetables and water. Is that okay? I'm going to unpack that in a little bit. But I remember being a, a teenager and a younger kid, and my one grandmother would fly out from Ontario about once a year. And when I found out that she was coming into town, I instantly thought of one thing, that we were going to have a Sunday brunch at Newlands in Langley, which was like, the great, in my mind, was the greatest place and the greatest thing, like that I was going to be able to go there. And so when I heard that she was flying out, I just knew, great, I'm going to have my favorite meal of the year. And it's these like luxurious buffets are just like very strange, really. Like I, as a kid, I was on my plate. I remember having like a, a special custom made omelet. Uh, and beside it was shaved uh, roast beef with horseradish on it. And then like um, some salad rolls and stuff like that. It's just like the most random hodgepodge of food. But to me, I was just like going everywhere. I'm like, this looks good. This looks good. This looks good. And just like totally enamored by it. What a great experience, right? Well, that kind of luxury, that kind of food for a teenage boy is placed before Daniel. And he says, I won't do it. I won't defile myself. I resolve not to do it. 
And so Daniel suggests, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief eunuch to allow him not to defile himself. And, and, and the chief of the eunuchs is actually concerned about his own head. He's, he's given Daniel favor. He's, he's interested in this, but he's worried that he's going to lose his head if this goes badly. And so Daniel actually goes to the, the superior just above him and asks, will you do a 10-day test? And, and me and my friends will just eat vegetables and drink water and test us after 10 days and see if it works. And so um, it's cr- incredible ingenuity here by Daniel, and that's what they do. And look at verse 15. And they were found to be, after this 10-day test, to be better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, uh, uh, you may have noticed signs around the church that talk about uh, Pastor Appreciation Month that our elders put on the windows and stuff. And uh, some of you didn't know there was such a thing as Pastor's Appreciation Month, but it's just one of the many mercies of our God that there is. And you guys, you have been so wonderful. Like there's typically, like over the last month, there's been such a flood of like delicious food and baking and all these things just coming in. And I want you to be able to express your appreciation. So it's not to be rude. I, cert- I eat uh, like a fair portion. And I've just, so over the last month, I've just been eating a lot of it. And after the 30 days, wouldn't you know it, I'm fatter and probably not healthier than, uh, than I was before that test, but um, that's been really, really great, so thank you. But something really strange is happening here because Daniel, as opposed to all the other teenagers having the king's buffet, Daniel and his friends are having vegetables and water, and they're found to be more healthy, more, they put on weight. <laughs> they're looking great. And they've, 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 the test has been successful. It shouldn't have happened. Look, my, my point here is not that we should all go on the Daniel diet. Like that's just, that's just a weird reading of the scriptures. It's not the point, but it's that as Daniel sought to be faithful to God, God met him in it. Like that shouldn't have happened, but it did. Daniel resolved to be faithful and God met him in his quest to be faithful this determination of Daniel's was at the risk to his life. So now let's conclude with a um, really application for us on this. What does it look like for us not to eat from the king's table, not to be indoctrinated by the culture of our place? Well, the first thing I'd want to say is that um, we are exiles. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you, this is to Christians everywhere, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's the call of Peter. This is not our homeland. We are foreigners here. We are awaiting a promised land, our true home, a kingdom forever with our God. And so in the meantime, we are as exiles in this place. And don't give yourself over to the passions that exist in this place you are in of exile. We live as exiles in the sense that we await our homeland and we live in exile in a world that rejects the message of the gospel and may in many instances reject us. So we have to uh, kind of handle this rightly. For some Christians view Canada essentially as ancient Jerusalem. That, that we ins- we're like it. It's easy to read the Bible that way and see the followers of God in Jerusalem and think, well, that's us. The place God has chosen to pour out his blessing. And then it comes as a surprise when 
Christian values are not upheld in broader society. Listen, we're not ancient Jerusalem. We're 21st century Canada. Then sometimes we'd make the direct assertion, well, we're Babylon. Well, other Christians view Canada essentially as Babylon, a place that is hostile to God's truth and God's people. Listen, we are not ancient Jerusalem. We are not ancient Babylon. But in this time and place, we are exiles. And we have the difficult task of of trying to be faithful to God in hard circumstances where the temperature only seems to be rising. Peter's right, we're exiles. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, and that's exactly right. Jesus will come again and bring us out of this exile and into the promised land, the perfect kingdom of God. Daniel's not the only one who faced challenges like this at the risk of his life. Christians face that right now, and many Christians have faced that throughout history. And Martin Luther is one of those who has faced the prospect of death two days from now, October 31st, will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, They they mark the the starting day as the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door in Germany, making a case to the Catholic Church saying, look, we have lost our way in 95 ways and we need to reform And this led to a great Protestant Reformation. The idea that what Martin Luther was attempting to do is bring us back to what the word of God says. That we are justified, not by all these things off to the side, but justified by grace through faith. And eventually, by 1521, four years later, he was really on trial at what was called the Diet of Worms. I've got a couple options here. The the Daniel Diet and the Diet of Worms, your call. But diet really meaning it was like really court proceedings and worms was worms in this place in Germany. And he was told to recant all of his writings. And Luther said, oh, your serene emperor and you illustrious princes and gracious lords, you demand a clear and direct answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is captured to the word of God Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. He didn't know what would happen next, but he knew what he had found in the scriptures. He knew that he had met his savior in them and he knew he was never going to capitulate, give in. He was gonna remain faithful. And I wonder in my own life, I wonder in yours, have we capitulated to the culture already? so much, even when we haven't been at risk of being burned at the stake or being beheaded? I mean, what if, what if the temperature really is turned up on this thing? And we already capitulated a long time ago. We already gave in to the cultural norms in every sphere, even before it was really that costly. What then? Have we resolved? Have we resolved not to defile ourselves at all? So let me give us three. I've been, I've been, thinking about this, praying about this, talking it through with lots of people all week. What do we consider the king's feast that we will not defile ourselves with? We will resolve to be faithful to God. And I'll just give you a few. We could keep going and going and going. One is this whole issue of consumerism. 
I was, uh, my wife and I, our family, we moved three blocks down the road in September. Um, and in that move, I now have taken on um, yard work because we were in a strata before. Now the yard work is mine. And I'm like, what did we do? And I was like spending like four hours out in my yard yesterday, raking up leaves. And I, just, just to kind of get ahead of it a little bit, the trees are still full. And yet my lawn is full. Of, and so it's like, that. oh, let's just get some of this done. So I'm raking and I have this neighbor come up to me and he says, hey, do you want to... Um, do you want to borrow my leaf blower? And I was like, ah, no, like, don't worry about it. I'm just, I'm just trying to just do a little bit here, get a little bit of it done, like four big bags later, right? And so um, he's like, okay. And he walks away. Five minutes later, he comes with his leaf blower. And he's like, you just push this three times and then you pull it and then there you go. Just, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll use your leaf blower. Thank you. That's very kind. And then he looked at me. He's a man in his 60s. His name's Richard. And he said to me, like, it's so crazy, isn't it? That like, we all think every one of us has to buy one of everything. Like, why don't we just share our stuff? Like this consumerism so crazy. I was like, amen. <laughs> Richard, you are so right. And thank you for the illustration. I'm writing this down right now. <laughs> You're right. Like, why don't we share our stuff? And I'm like, maybe I can come to your house later and like just see some more stuff that we can share together. <laughs> <laughs> Like from your garage. I mean, like, I totally agree, Richard. This is like so amazing. I totally agree with you. But haven't we fallen for it in mass? Like this idea of like, oh, my neighbor has that. I should get that. Right? Now my neighbor has that. I should get that. I, I just wonder sometimes, like, do our houses look any different than the things in them? Like I'm asking that of myself. Really? Like, have, have we just whole part and parcel? Just like, we're in on the consumeristic mindset. Do our bank accounts look different? Man, like I, I have a laundry list of stuff I would love to get with the money I don't have. Like I'm just confessing with you, right? Like I just, I'm constantly, t- ah, it's hard. It's hard to approach money, the consumerism differently. One of the things I watch on TV regularly is sports. I don't watch a ton of TV. I watch some sports. And it, for whatever reason, it's like, I guess this is the niche or something, but like there's it, it, a lot of American uh, feed and stuff like that too. And it's just like Freedom 55 type stuff. It's just pumped there all the time. Like, like almost every commercial break, there's something about when you reach a certain age, you should just be able to make it you time. It becomes... It becomes this, that, that, that the sunset years are about you. And listen, I'm not saying anything about retirement. I'm not saying anything about going on a cruise or going on a holiday, but I am speaking to this idea in the culture that takes it way further than that, which says, now it's all about you. Make this phase of your life yours, which is crazy, right? because you have never had so much freedom of time and finances likely in your whole life. And yet you're supposed to turn a blind eye to the people that you could minister to to at that point. Listen, a follower of Jesus never retires. Retire from your work, great. But don't retire whole part and parcel. You never retire from being a follower of Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a disciple making disciple. And you are given, you are afforded such a treasury of resources and time to disciple others with those golden years. Don't buy it that you check out in that age. Resolve, and all of these things I've talked about regarding consumerism, resolve with me 
I'm attempting to resolve here. (laughs) Resolve not to defile yourself by gaining the whole world and losing your soul. Don't do it. I think we'd be remiss without at least acknowledging in some way uh, the sexual ethics of our time and place. I'll just, I could illustrate that in many, many ways, but, but do we look like, do we follow the, the scripture's cues on, on sex and marriage, or do we follow the cultural norms? Where are our sympathetic leanings? Where are our, are our convictions on, on, on these things? And I'll just illustrate it this way. Uh, a pastor and author named Kevin DeYoung wrote a blog post where he said, I don't think Christians should watch Game of Thrones. Because he's like, I've never watched it, but what I hear from so many people is that the, 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 the sex scenes in it are essentially softcore porn. And, and yet every time Game of Thrones is on, he's saying, my Twitter feed is filled with, with Christians that I respect, just tweeting about how amazing the writing and the acting and the stories are. And so what he's saying is, I just don't think we should defile ourselves there. And the reason I say that is because the backlash that came to this brother because he's like, I don't think we should watch that show. The backlash from Christians. Oh, don't you touch my religious freedom, brother. Don't you, tr- don't you touch my liberty. I can have a clear conscience and watch softcore porn <laughs> or whatever. Like, like, I'm not talking about Game of Thrones. I'll spread the wealth, okay? I'll go a lot. I, I haven't seen it. I, I'm not even making a statement about it. But what was so interesting was he's saying, let's resolve not to defile ourselves. There's, 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 there's some stuff going on here. I just, just want to say, I don't know that that's good for our souls, our minds, our thinking, our for consuming, for taking into our bodies and just the uproar about it. Don't, don't you tell us what we shouldn't. I'm just inviting a resolve when it comes to our sexual ethics, a resolve not to defile ourselves, not to take the norms, not to be molded by the norms. Look at the indoctrination of Babylon. It's like, the answering the questions of who God is, who we are, who others are, what the world is. And when we answer those questions like our culture, well, lo and behold, don't we live like our culture? And so we have to ask ourselves, where are the places that we will resolve not to defile ourselves? That's the question. And with our jobs, there's doctors I know who are saying, look, at this present time, made medical assistance in dying Um, I I can, for moral reasons, bypass it and then not administer to it. I don't have to um, help someone die. I don't have to kill them right now. But there is a branch in medicine right now. This is what I'm hearing from some Canadian doctors. This is what I'm reading about. There is a branch right now that's saying, no, 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 doctor. You can't make the choice. The patient asks, you administer. That's your duty. So listen, if that gets an ear in the coming years, the question is, are you going to be a doctor or are you going to be a Christian? It may come. Look, I know teachers are facing this, right? Look, the curriculum and all, all these, the tension points. The, the question comes, can I be a teacher in the public school system and can I hold my convictions as a Christian? Look, my My word to you is resolve what you will and what you will not do. Resolve today what you will and will not do. And if you're not resolved in the easy times, look, I'm questioning myself. Like, have I already packed it in? Have I already capitulated so much right now when it hasn't been pressed hard 
Like what's going to happen when, when, when the heat comes? I think what we need to do is resolve, not just for that one heroic day when we will stand like Martin Luther and say, I will not recant, but in the little decisions where, our, where morally we're just stepping over the line and we know it, resolve wherever that, right? What's faithfulness? What's, what's Daniel in your circumstances? And in, I, just, I invite you to resolve not to defile yourself by sacrificing your faith, your morals for the sake of, of job security. James Hunter wrote a a significant book a few years ago, five or six years ago, called To Change the World. And in it, he talked about something he called faithful presence. He was advocating that Christians in culture have a faithful presence. And he describes it this way. A theology of faithful presence calls Christians to enact the shalom of God, like peace to its full extent, to enact the shalom of God in the circumstances in which God has placed them and to actively seek it on behalf of others. I just, I just want to say, what I'm not advocating for here this morning, I am not advocating for this. Don't be belligerent. Don't be judgmental to the culture, right? There's, this, there's something about what Daniel's doing here that's creative and quiet and humble, where he's going to the one, his superior one above and saying, listen, can we do this test with humility and respect, what I see him doing is, can you just test us with vegetables for 10 days? Like, and he's trying to have a faithful, he's going to be faithful, even if it costs him his life. But he's not pointing the finger at Nebuchadnezzar and saying, you, evil, right, force. Like he's, he's going to remain faithful in the midst of that place. Heard of a young woman I know of, uh, where uh, last year at Halloween, her employer was like, okay, staff, everybody's dressing like witches. You all need to dress like a witch on Halloween. And so for her, that was an issue of conscience. She's like, I love Jesus. I'm not really witchy, you know, it's kind of the opposite. And so uh, I just don't, in her conscience, she was like, what do I do? Like, what do I do about that? Like, I want to be faithful to Jesus, but I've been told to do this. So she dressed like a sandwich. And I, honestly, I just think that is the greatest thing. <laughs> That's so Daniel-like. There's just, I, I, I'm going to be creative. Look, look, I get that Daniel was given great wisdom. We see that God did that in the book. But you know what? God gives wisdom to us if we ask for it. Lord, give me wisdom and grace in this circumstance. How do I behave as a, a, a loving follower of Jesus that can both continue to minister to the world around me, have a faithful presence in it, but Lord, would you help me be faithful to you? Give me that creative humility, Lord. Look, this is a call not to brilliance, but to faithfulness. Jesus called Peter, an ordinary fisherman, to be an apostle. And Jesus called Paul, one of the most brilliant minds of the day, to be an apostle. Maybe you're more like Paul, or maybe you're more like Peter. But God is with you as you give yourself to faithful presence in your sphere of influence wherever you go. Give yourself to that in the midst of it appearing at face value like everything was going off the rails. God was still faithful and in control and working. And Daniel was convicted that no matter what circumstances came, he was going to be faithful. And God met him, used him, worked through him in that. I would be remiss as a a preacher of the gospel, not to close with the fact that, listen, Jesus is the greater Daniel. 
And, and you need to hear that because I think that that's what, what brings all the motivations now into how we would, why we would even risk. Why would we put our jobs on the line, our lives on the line? Because roughly 600 years after Daniel, Jesus would leave his home and willingly embrace a sinful world without defiling himself. Satan in scripture is sometimes called the prince of this world and Jesus was up against him and it was in the midst of, of, of 40 days, coming to the end of 40 days of Jesus wander in the wilderness without food, fasting, no water. And you know what Satan does? He tempts him with food. I turn that rock into bread. But he doesn't do it. He remains faithful. Jesus would give a faithful witness in front of Roman rulers but not, see, not have favor, be nailed to a cross. And he did that so that he could usher in a kingdom that cannot be taken away from you ever. And so we can actually be like Jesus and follow him faithfully, even if it costs us our lives, because there is a kingdom not of this world that will never pass away, that is awaiting us in glory. And he will be there. He'll meet you in difficult circumstances and help you in towards faithfulness and paradise awaits. Can I pray for us? And then we'll respond with quick song. <laughs> Jesus, oh, we love you. We love that you're the greater Daniel. We love that you did not defile yourself. You, you remained pure. You kept the law perfectly. We could never do that. And then you laid your life down so that your spotless record could become our record of righteousness. Thank you. And then you invade our lives and you are with us and you meet us in our distressing circumstances and you meet us at every turn in the challenges and temptations to capitulate to the world in which we are exiles. Oh Lord, help us remain faithful as your people, as a creative, wise, humble counterculture living with faithful presence and in the, in the place that you have placed us. Would you do that through us, Lord? Would you work in our midst? And would you give us that resolve to live faithfully for you? In Jesus' name, amen.